Come and ask you to take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of Colossians this morning uh, as we continue in our series uh, looking at uh, this study that we've done uh, on the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Uh, We'll be taking a break next week as we uh, uh, take some time to uh, recognize the Easter celebration. And uh, you can be in prayer. We, of course, have got um, uh, Good Friday this uh, coming Friday come and and be a part of that as we gather and remember our Lord's uh, death uh, on the cross. And we'll have a special time of communion. I believe it starts at 7 o'clock. So make sure you are a part of that. And then uh, take some time this week to be involved in God's Word, to remember uh, the Holy Week and all that our Lord and Savior um, was a part of as he prepared his disciples, as he he prepared himself uh, for the great sacrifice. And uh, take some time, walk your family through uh, those incredible moments, those moments that that have allowed you and I to be a part of the family of God. And then come, uh, hopefully you'll invite people to be a part of one of our two services Uh, We're going to believe, as is in the past, we're going to pack out both of our services, and uh, I'm going to be bringing a message uh, from uh, uh, one of the Gospels talking about the two men who were on the road to Emmaus, who meet Jesus, and though they were disappointed at the events that transpired, uh, their hearts were filled with joy. And so uh, make sure you're a part of that, and uh, really just take this opportunity to uh, once again renew your uh, walk with your Lord and Savior in that way. Uh, Well, with that, let's uh, turn in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, we're in the book of Colossians. Grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you uh, to page 984, page 984. And we've been in this series uh, that we've entitled uh, Preeminent, looking at um, Jesus Christ being the preeminent one, the one who is going to be first and foremost in all of creation as he reigns supreme even now from the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven. But as we've turned to chapter 3 in the book of Colossians, we've seen that Christ is also to be preeminent in our own walks. And uh, in, in the beginning of chapter 3, we see that Christ's preeminence should involve all of our relationships. And we've studied over these past couple of weeks that Christ's preeminence should involve uh, and, and change our relationship with sin. It should change our relationship with our pursuit of holiness. Last week we learned that it should change the relationship between a husband and wife. And, and today uh, we look at the relationship within the family of parents and children. And as Paul uh, helps the Christians of the people of Colossae to remember that uh, as you profess Jesus Christ, changes need to take place. Changes need to happen in, in all of our relationships. And Paul, just as he addressed husbands and wives, he says to the family this morning, if Christ is not preeminent, if he's not first and foremost in the family, the family will suffer. Parents will struggle to know their role. Children uh, will struggle to understand why their parents do the things that they do. And in two very short and, and concise verses... Paul tells us why it is so important that parents honor God in all that they do and that kids do the same. And when they do those things, the family's going to be healthy, it's going to be vital, and it's going to bring honor and glory to the preeminent one, Jesus Christ. So with that as an introduction, I'm going to ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at two short verses, and then I want to jump in our text and and move quickly uh, through it this morning. Uh, Here's our text before us, Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. The Apostle Paul, by the uh, gift of the Holy Spirit, says the following to us, Children, obey your parents in everything. 
for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Let's pray. Father God, I ask a blessing on the reading of your word. I pray a blessing on the hearing of it. Lord, you have prepared our hearts to receive this word uh, through our, our worship, through the leading of these wonderful college young people and their hearts desire to proclaim the name of Jesus wherever they go. Now, Lord, it, it's the difficult part where we hear your word and we know that you are calling us, you are commanding us to live according to it. And we know by by our own strength, we can't do it. So, Lord, I pray a blessing on the families of our church. I pray a blessing on the parents, Lord, that you would allow them to lead faithfully. I pray a blessing on the children, that, Lord, they would receive that godly leadership and thrive, and that they would seek to honor you as they honor mom and dad. Now, Lord, take us to your word and teach us all from it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. This last week, my family was given a DVD movie of a movie I'd never heard of before that came out just a couple years ago. It was entitled Parental Guidance. It stars Billy Crystal and Bette Midler, and they are grandparents. And maybe some of you are aware of the movie. They play absentee grandparents who are kind of living their own life and doing their own thing, and they get a call out of the blue from their daughter who hasn't talked with them for some time. And as a result of that, they're called into action because their daughter is wanting to go on a trip with her husband to get away. They hadn't been away for, for years. But here's the problem. Absentee grandma and grandpa, high controlling mom and dad who are helicopter parents, and three snot-nosed kids. And, and that just creates a recipe for disaster. And as a result of that, the storyline goes on that uh, over the weeks, uh, the week time that they are uh, together, grandma and grandpa learn some lessons, mom and dad learn some lessons, and then the three kids learn some lessons. And, and by the end of the movie, the hour and a half of, of the movie, everybody has had all their wrongs righted. All of their dysfunctions and struggles are no longer there, but they're now in the past, and everybody lives happily ever after. It's a funny movie, a lot of great humor in it, a movie I would even recommend uh, to each of you to, to watch. But here's the problem. Hollywood does a great job of telling us what a not-so-ordinary family looks like because that's not how family life goes in an hour and a half going from dysfunction in the Badal family to everything working out just fine. I mean, some of the problems that we face in our families are difficult ones. As a pastor, I'm fully aware of many of the struggles that, that many of us have as families. We've got issues between husbands and wives, as we addressed last week, and, and the struggles that that can create within the family. We've got children who are rebellious and, and, and fighting mom and dad at every step of the way, bringing great um, uh, sorrow to the family, especially to mom and dad. We've got children dealing with all kinds of struggles, whether it's anxiety or emotional issues that, that come, no reason uh, or, or, or fault of their own, but just struggling as kids and, and creating dynamics within the family that, that are difficult. And I wish I could wave my magic pastoral wand and say after an hour and a half, everything's going to be okay. Uh, but we know that, that life isn't that way. And Paul must have recognized that in the Colossian church. 
Paul must have recognized the importance that the family has, not only in a, uh, a home, but the role that the family plays within the church, and even greater that, than that in society. And, and, and we wish that we would be able to just make everything better and, and everything will be okay, but we recognize that if God's going to have a place in our families, if he's going to help us in this process, Jesus has to be number one. Jesus has to be number one in the life of mom and dad. Jesus has to be number one in the life of the children. And so Paul, in his letter to this, to this little church in Colossae, where he has emphasized Christ's preeminence, does not let the moment go by without reminding the family that if you want God's help in this thing called life, if you want God's blessing in your family life and in your home, Christ has got to be number one. And so everything that we've learned about Christ's preeminence needs to be then moved to the home. And it's there that not all the problems will be resolved, but we will have God's grace, we will have God's gifts, and, and, and we will have God's strength to to address the problems that, that come our way. Now, the Bible makes it clear that family life isn't easy. Just as we learned last week with regards to marriage, uh, family life in the church is spoken about very honestly. Throughout the Bible, we see that there are wonderful pictures of, of godly, healthy families within the Old Testament and New Testament. And I'm thankful for that because it tells us that even though we are sinners, even though we are dysfunctional and struggle, we can uh, strive with God's help to have healthy and, and vital families. But I also want to remind you throughout the Old and New Testament, even in the lives of some of the most faithful people, that family lives were crazy as well. They were downright ugly at times. Things like betrayal, abuse, favoritism, things like uh, um, even killing, murder, and death, uh, the first a sin outside of the garden is one brother killing another brother. That's a family dynamic. And we need to recognize that even as God is our Father, if we do not keep our eyes on Him, uh, we can do terrible things to one another. And so I'm glad that the Scriptures speak to it. And, and I want to look at this short passage of Scripture. I and mean, there's not much there again. And I want to look at, first of all, uh, in your outlines, the dilemma that's facing the family. Because as we understand, if we want to honor Christ, we got to understand we're living in a culture, we're living in a time that, that the world's not going to make that very easy. And within our, our outline this morning, we got to look at the dilemma that's, that's hitting us as families today. Because we've got an enemy. And the enemy is, is not one that at times is so obvious. Sometimes it can be incredibly subtle. And I want you to notice two dilemmas that the family has to work through. But before I do, I want to give you a little bit of a definition because what is a family? I looked to the dictionary. That's what we do when we look for, for definitions. And, and the dictionary said this of a family. A family is a group of individuals living under one roof, usually under one head. It's a group of persons of common ancestry. Well, that definition doesn't help me very much. It doesn't tell me what's going on in that family. It doesn't tell me uh, the impact that that family can have. And, and I came across an article uh, from the Insight for Living uh, website by Chuck Swindoll, and he says this about the family. The family is where you put down your first roots, where you form your most lasting impressions, where you put together the building blocks of your character, and where you determine whether you will view life through eyes of prejudice or acceptance. Family is where you learn to laugh. 
and where you are allowed to weep without losing respect. Family is where you learn how to share, how to relate, and how to treat other people. Family is where you learn how to interpret your surroundings correctly. It is where you discover how to draw the line between right and wrong and between good and evil. The family is of great importance, not only, again, for us in the home, but for the church and for society at, at, at large. But how does one get there? How does one begin to put Christ in that where everything that we do, whether we're an adult or a kid, we're seeing that being a part of a family is a special thing, it's a God-honoring thing, and it's something that is for our good. The problem is the world's not going to help us very much with that. On TV, dysfunctional families are defined as modern families, and seldom do we see within church families even a, a biblical ideal of what families look like. But don't get me wrong as I preach this message this morning, I'm not speaking from a moral or domestic superiority or supremacy. Amanda and I struggle, as you all struggle, at being parents and, and as being adult children. We're living in days, as you are, of, uh, of dealing with the trials and temptations that come the family's way. But we have to make some decisions as a family, and so do you. We have to make the hard decisions. Are we going to follow the world's way in parenting and in child rearing? Or are we going to follow God's ways? And those ways aren't always easy. And, and it makes it harder because the world is attacking us in two ways this morning. Write this down. We see that parental authority, one of the first dilemmas is that parental authority is a curse word. You don't have to have children to see that we are living in a world of changing values and role reversals. The culture is turning its heat up on the family by condoning and even encouraging a spirit of rebellion within the family. Children are given permission to ignore, disregard, and even disobey all authority, including and probably most often the authority of mom and dad. Now, I'm only 30, almost 39 years of age, and, and I've seen in even subtle ways how, how the... Um, line uh, of uh, separation between parents or even adults and kids has been skewed. It was unheard of growing up in, in my day that a child would address an adult by their first name, and it happens all the time. And again, that's not that saying that that's altogether bad. It just shows that there's this no longer this distinction between the role of adult or, or kid. In my day, when my parents went to the parent-teacher conference, it was a, uh, a unified, singular front against Tim, the student. I remember one time I was at the parent-teacher conference, and, and, and uh, the teacher invited me in, and, and I sat there with my parents, and they went through the litany of things that, that I had done wrong and needed to correct. And my father looked at the teacher and said, Teacher, I've got one thing to share with you. Tim will come with a new attitude on Monday. And there was no question. There wasn't, you know what, and, and, and we hear this a lot by our, even our educators here in the church, that their response is when mom and dad come in, my Billy wouldn't do such a thing. Oh, my Billy isn't capable of this or that. My parents said, oh, yeah, he's capable of it. <clears throat> and then they would usually hand the teacher a 20 and apologize. <clears throat> but we need to understand this morning that as, as children, we need to recognize 
that in our generation today, it's kids who are making the rules. Even our government, if you look at legal briefs, our government's bending over backwards, giving children full rights and decision-making and handcuffing parents and making parental consent uh, in a child's life obsolete. If our culture was to write uh, a passage of Scripture uh, like Ephesians 6.1, it would no longer say children obey your parents, but parents obey your children. This reminds me of a story of two fathers who were speaking together and the subject of discipline came up, of which one, asked, uh, one father asked the other, hey, do you spank your children? To which the other said, yes, but only in self-defense. It's amazing the times and culture we live in. But you may say this morning, hey, not in my house. My house, my kids, they mind their P's and Q's. My, my children know how to address with respect and honor the adults and, and the parents in their life. And, and so maybe that's not your issue this morning. But there's a second issue that culture has brought in, and that is familial or family solidarity uh, is, is wasting away. It's slipping away. And what that is, is that's a more subtle issue. Families no longer are havens where the closest relationships and interactions take place. We live such individualistic lives as families. We're running here, we're running there. We've got one kid going to a sport event. We've got another kid going to a band concert. We've got mom and dad at meetings and all of that. And the home becomes a hotel filled with individuals where we just pass one another in the hallways and say hello. Gone are the days of eating together. Gone are the days of spending time together. And even when we are together, and I get it, and I do not pass blame on anyone else because we deal with it in the Badal home, the Badals can all be in one room and have a screen in front of them and having no interaction with the others. Technology and, and the way we relate to one another is impacting the family, and we need to be careful of it because I don't believe that's God's best for the family. And while I fully recognize that even during the good old days of Leave it to Beaver and Andy Griffith, families were struggling. And so it's not that we just simply go back to to Mayberry or to a time uh, less complicated, because as we look back and we hear from even some of our mature saints of the faith, they will tell you that there were all kinds of struggles back in their day as well. Our struggles are just a wee bit more impactful on some of the things that maybe they didn't have to address. So with these cultural hazards before us, Paul reminds not only us today, but the church in Colossae that the family matters. And what we need to recognize as we look at the families, we need to address, first of all, the first group of people that Paul addresses is the children. Notice in our text, he, he speaks to them and he says, all right, as he shared his, God's word with them, he speaks to them and he says, all right, Now I've got a word for children. If parents are going to raise godly kids, then they've got to remember what the Bible says about this group of people called children. The Bible says much about children, and it would be good for us to view our kids not through our lens of dysfunction, but through God's lens of holiness and righteousness and what he says about your child. And it it may help you because you may view your child maybe less than you should, or maybe you view your child in a higher way than you should. God's word and God's truth is going to help us in that process. 
Now, when Paul speaks about this phrase, children, he uses the Greek word technon. Technon speaks more of position than age. So when Paul says children, he doesn't per se have an age in mind that he's speaking of. He's saying, if you have a mom or a dad who are still living, you're a technon. At 30, in almost 39 years of age, I'm a technon. I'm a child. Now, while I have my own family, while I'm a parent in my own right, my mom and dad are both living, and in some ways, this passage still speaks to me because I'm a child. I've got a mom and dad who are around who I still have to engage with. Now, the uh, Ten Commandments remind us that at the basis of all that we do with our parents as children, honor and respect is huge. And while that honor and respect is going to change over uh, the, the one's life, we need to recognize that what, when we hear children, that we don't just consign it to those who are 18 and younger. Now, most scholars believe that when Paul addresses children per se in this passage, he is speaking to those that are readily living under uh, the roof or the, the home and authority of a parent. So if you're 35 years of age and you're eating your parents' food and, and taking showers in your parents' uh, bathrooms and, and uh, living under their roof, you're going to need to listen to this. Even though you may be older than 18, you are still uh, needing your parents in your life to, to sustain you and all of that. But here's something we need to remember as we look at this idea of children. A couple truths. First of all, all of us are children. You didn't come out of a test tube. You didn't come out of nowhere. You have a mom and a dad. And as, as you have a mom and a dad, whether they're living or not, we need to remember that our parents play an integral part in our lives. Because of that, no matter what age we are, we're called to honor them. Uh, the scripture tells us in 1 Timothy 5, 4, that we should even as our parents get older, which is a good reminder for me as my parents continue to age, that I have a commitment to them even though I'm out of their home. In 1 Timothy 5, 4, it says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has, a ch- has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household so that they may make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing to the Lord. So what, what Paul is saying uh, to Timothy is, hey, as, as parents get older, it is not the church's job first and foremost to take care of the needs of ailing parents. If there's a child there, then that child, especially a believing child, that believing child has a right and responsibility to fulfill and meet the needs of aging parents. And this is pleasing to the Lord. But as we look at this issue of children, I don't want to be so uh, generic that we can't apply it. I want to talk specifically to those, and there'll be more in the second service, of course, those who are, like I would say, 8 to 18 years of age. And I want to remind us of some truths of what the Scripture says about young people as a whole. And the first thing I want you to notice this morning is that young people or children are capable of understanding spiritual truths. And so as we look in the second point, I I missed my second point there, the dimensions of children, as we examine what the Scripture says about kids, number one, they are capable of understanding spiritual truth. Notice in our text that as, as Paul runs through this, he doesn't stop and say, all right, it's time for a children's sermon. It's time for us to gather all the kids together and have a conversation. He doesn't say, okay, kids, 
I know I've been talking about a lot of important stuff, and you didn't need to understand any of that. You didn't have to follow along with any of that. This is the only thing you need to follow along with. Paul addresses the children in the same voice as he addresses mom and dad, as he addresses in the first two chapters of the supremacy and preeminence of Jesus Christ. Paul had the idea that children were tracking with him for all of the book of Colossians, that when he got to chapter 3, verse 20, the children then knew their part. And we need to recognize this morning that our kids are not spiritually dumb individuals. They can teach us, as my own children have taught me, some of the most important and deep truths about who God is. And we need, to, we need to embrace that. We need to uh, push for that and, and stretch our children's mind theologically. And that's why they need to be taught not just simple little uh, anecdotes, but the truth of who God is and what he desires in a child's life. Paul sees them as active members within the body of Christ at Colossae. And we should see children as active members within this church. One of the things that Mario tells us all the time, Mario doesn't get angry about a lot of stuff, but Mario gets angry about one thing. And Mario gets upset, our student ministries pastor, he gets upset when we say, uh, when we allude to the uh, young people, well, there's the church of tomorrow. Mario says, they're not the church of tomorrow, they're the church of today. And we need to recognize that their days aren't coming. Their days are now. And, and I am so thankful now, 25 years I've attended this church, whether as a young person and now for the last 11 as a pastor, I am so glad to have been a part of a church that never said, you know what, children are to be seen and not heard. But they were challenged to live vibrant and healthy Christian lives and given opportunities for ministry. And that's what we need to be doing as well. The second thing I want you to know that the Bible says about children is they're sinful at birth. They're sinful at birth. While children can, yes, understand spiritual truths, one of the first ones that parents need to be teaching their children is that they're sinners. Psalm 51.5 reminds us that we are conceived in sin as a result of being a part of the human race. And this clearly is seen in the life of babies. Cute and cuddly little babies never need to be taught the word no. They never need to be taught selfishness. They don't have to be take a class that tells them uh, why they hate uh, someone who has taken something from them. And this is why, as a culture, we need to be careful because we hear more and more in our culture that we need to allow our children to express themselves, that they don't need guiding, that our nurture uh, is going to affect their nature. The Bible makes it clear that the parent's job, in fact, is to impact their nature because their nature altogether is sinful, just as you and I are. And so the parent's job is to help lead and guide as one sinner recognizing that they have to stand accountable to God, that now they need to teach their posterity the very important truth that, yes, you're a sinner, but God loves you. But as a sinner, you are inclined to do evil, And because of that inclination to do evil, you need parameters in your life that will keep you from being any worse than you already are. A child needs to understand their relationship with God. And the only way they'll understand their relationship with God is if they understand their relationship with their sin. Because a child doesn't need God if they don't have sin. We need to teach that to them. Number two, we need to recognize the Bible makes it clear that the children are susceptible to foolishness. 
They are susceptible to foolishness. Proverbs 22:15 tells us that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction drives it far from him. The idea they're bound up uh, literally is the idea that a child's natural and default inclination is to do foolish things, to make foolish decisions. Kids say not only the craziest things, but they also do them. Uh, you are fully aware, as you've heard me talk, that I did some crazy things as a kid. Can I tell you something? If it weren't for the grace of God, I would be in a coffin right now. I can't tell you how many times I made absolutely horrific decisions that not only would have impacted my own life, but put in harm's way other people, people very close to me that would have impacted them and their family. And by the grace of God and the mercy of his spirit, my bad decisions didn't have greater ramifications. And so one of the truths that we need to remind our children of is that children, you are given to a nature that is always going to lead you to foolish things and you need a mom and a dad and you need older people in your life who are gonna bring that in uh, to a place of, of health and, and vitality. Even for our young people here from the college, your decisions that you're going to make as you're growing in wisdom and stature, we also need to recognize that you've got some big decisions ahead of who you're going to marry, where you're going to live. And, and even at 18 to 22, 23 years of age, those are still decisions that by inclination we can make for foolish reasons. And we need parents, we need people in our lives who are going to help guide us in that way. So here's the thing that we need to recognize. They're sinful, they're capable of spiritual things, and they're susceptible to foolishness. But, but let me remind you this morning that children are also special to God and their family. Psalm 127 reminds us that children are in fact a gift from God and parents are blessed to have them. And I know some of you right now are, are in such a trial and tribulation with your kid, you're ready to pull your hair out if you've got it, and, and you're just, you're done. And I want to remind you this morning, as difficult as your child may be, your child is of great significance to God, and they should be of great significance to you. I challenge my parents. I, I, here's the thing. I shouldn't even be preaching this message. I am so absolutely disqualified to talk about children obeying their parents. I, I challenge my parents. My, my mom would go to performances, and, and even my high school graduation, she cried because I did something stupid at my high school graduation. The poor woman cried, cried, cried. And, and, and I look back, and I was one of those kids where all the other church moms would gather together and pray for her because of me. And here's the thing that I want to remind you of. And you say, well, Tim, you're speaking in hyperbole. No, this is one of the times I am not exaggerating. I was a tough kid. I was a kid that challenged the boundaries in, in all ways. And, and I share all that with you, not so that you can laugh and say, man, Tim's just a really funny guy and he's got great stories. I tell you that because I know some of you have incredibly difficult kids. And they're challenging you, and they're pushing the limits. And I stand here as a trophy of godly mom and dad who prayed for their son who didn't have it click until about 19 years of age. Did it finally start to click? And, and God is still working on your kids. So don't give up on them. They're special. They've got a special place. And maybe they're, maybe they're struggling in school. Maybe they're struggling in relationships. Maybe uh, depression. Whatever the, the gamut may be, their struggle may be huge. God is not done with you as a parent, and surely God is not done with them as a kid. 
They're special, and they've got great significance. And God has a plan to use your children in awesome ways if you pray for them and if you lead them in that direction, they will have a far much easier way to do that. Well, how do we get there? My final point this morning is the development that, of children that glorifies God. How do we develop this? Notice in our text, in verse 20, children are given a call. And so with each of the family unit, they're given this call or commitment uh, to their life. And so notice the first thing is the child's role in the family. What is this kid supposed to do? For those young people who think it's hard and, and life is unbearable at times and the issues of popularity and all of that really weigh you down, I get it. Those are important things for a young person. But I want you to take heart this morning that God makes it very, very easy for young people under their parents' authority uh, to follow God. God gives children one rule. Their one rule specific to them is that they would honor mom and dad and they would obey them in all things. A singular command. And that one rule is the only thing that a child needs to understand. But what is involved in that one rule? Number one, write this down, uh, what it means is kids, your parents are in charge. Your parents are in charge. The word obey is the word hupokuo, and it means one who hears and complies with the commands of one who has authority and responsibility for you. And so that means children uh, who live out this obedience hear what mom and dad say, and then they do it. And this means that children need to recognize this morning that when a command is given, a child need not hem and haw about whether or not they want to do it. One of the things, and I'll share this because none of my children are in here, one of the things we deal with in the Badal home with three boys is the question, why? Hey, I need you to come here. Why? I used to like the word why. I don't like it anymore. <laughs> hey, I need you to do this. Why? What do you mean why? In this family, I set the rules. You eat my food. I don't ask why. You don't get to ask why. But our children, they will ask why. That is not obedience. That is not hupokuo. It is one who hears and then does. And so we need to help our children to recognize that delayed obedience is just as bad as instant disobedience. And so we need to help those kids recognize that. Number two, the, the scripture says they must obey, and it says they must obey in all things, and so obedience must be consistent. It's not that we're called to a, a contextual obedience, meaning in certain contexts, in certain moments, a child is to obey. When it's your mom's birthday, then obey. But that word obey is found in the present imperative, which calls for a continued action that is to happen. And it's not just the action, but it's the attitude behind it. And so a kid is given over to this lifestyle of obedience. Second, it says in the text that we are to obey in all things and literally in everything, which means no exception. As long as, of course, a parent is not asking something that's not in concert with God's word. Again, that's that disclaimer that we talked about last week with wives. That children don't have to uh, submit to their mom and dad if their mom and dad are calling them to do something that is clearly, clearly, clearly marked out in Scripture not to do. 
But in all other things, even in the questionable things, it, here in this admonition, it is not the child's responsibility to judge whether or not they should, ju- they should um, obey parental commands. Now, this isn't as big of an issue for our boys yet, but for those who have teenagers and college kids, that's going to be a big thing. Because at that age, a child gets old enough to start thinking, you know what, I'm not sure there's a lot of great wisdom there. The job of the child isn't to discern whether mom and dad are being wise. God will judge them and work on them. Their job is to obey in all things. Why? That word again. Why? Because good behavior pleases God. It pleases Christ. Notice the text says, for, for this is pleasing to the Lord. It means that it causes Christ to be pleased. It is something that is well-approved, eminently satisfactory, and extraordinarily pleasing. And now understand that we do this not because we have to, but the idea here is because Christ is preeminent in the child's life, they are not going to obey begrudgingly, but they're going to do so with joy in their heart. Growing up as a child, uh, there was this uh, big thing. My parents never had the opportunity to put it on for me, but there was a bumper sticker that would say, my child is an honor student at, uh, you know, Caneland School or Hinkley Big Rock for me. And they'd put that with pride. In essence, my, my child is passing the test. And they wanted to announce that to everybody. I told my parents I wanted to get them one. My child uh, beat up your honor student at Hinkley Big Rock High School. Uh, they didn't have that one, and I'm sinful for even bringing that up, but I wanted a bumper sticker. But when a child obeys mom and dad, the picture that we get that it's pleasing to God is that God puts a bumper sticker, if you will, uh, on his proverbial car to say, I'm proud of my child. I'm proud of what they're doing. They're passing the test. It's not easy. It's difficult. But they are willing to go the extra mile to pass the test and they are honoring their mom and dad. That's the child's calling. It's simple, it's concise, it's to the point. But notice, just as we learned with husbands and wives last week, it doesn't say that, uh, Paul doesn't say, okay, children, all the weight's on you. He says to mom and dads as well, you've got a work to do. And he recognizes that while he reminds children of a role, there's also a parent's responsibility. And notice he starts with the phrase, father. And that phrase father could literally be translated parents. And so this isn't just for dads, but it's true for moms and dads, even though parents can, or fathers can uh, be susceptible to embittering their, their children. But notice what we are told when we think of the word father or parent, we think of God. And there are a couple things that God does for us that we need to, as parents, be reminded of. Number one, as a parent, you are called to provide for your child's needs. Inherent within that title of parent, you are called to provide for the well-being of your children. Not begrudgingly, not angrily, not impugning upon them some guilt. Oh, I work night and day to provide for you. You know, I'm so miserable that I have to do. No, I get the opportunity to provide for you, my child, and I do so just as God does. God doesn't get up in the morning and say, i got to turn on the light again. For those dumb fools down there, I don't want to, but I guess I have to or they'll die. God says, I'm going to shower my mercies upon you and they're going to be new every morning. And so parents are to lovingly supply just as God does for us, his children. 
And that will mean, listen parents, that will mean at times great sacrifice for the things that you love and believe even that you may be called to because you have a child. It's going to mean that you have to be called to be a good steward of the kids you are given. Number two, it's going to mean as a parent, just as it means with God, that, that we need to punish wrongdoing. We need to punish wrongdoing. As parents, we're called to bring about punishment and correction for wrongdoing. Now, this is inherent within the text where in verse 21 it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children uh, lest they become discouraged. And so Paul fully recognizes that a mom and a dad are going to correct their children. And he says, when you correct, don't provoke them uh, unwittingly. Make sure that when you punish them, you do so in a God-honoring way. As I discipline you, my children, you discipline your children with love and affection and patience and tenderness, but all the while addressing it. One of the things I've taught my, my boys is that when I discipline them, I remind them that God tells us as sinners there's going to be punishment for wrongdoing. We are going to be disciplined. And the question is, as a son to my children, as one of my boys, do you want me, your loving father, to do the discipline, or do you want the police officers or, or the prison um, guards to do it. Someone's going to discipline you. A judge is going to discipline you. If you do not sit under the discipline of mom and dad, someone else will do it. And I think you've got a better chance with a mom and dad who love you, who care for you, who want the best for you, than those who are doing a job of making sure that you, the wrongdoer, aren't impacting society in any greater ways. Parents don't give up that opportunity. I know there's a lot of differences on how we may discipline, but here's the thing. Be consistent, be loving through the process, and do something that forces the child to think about what they have done and remind them, don't ever forget this, remind them that you also have broken God's laws and show them how God's disciplined you in the process. That moves to one final thing, and that is we need to promote godly living as parents. How do we discipline our children without provoking them? This word provoke means to do something to the child that causes them to fume, to be filled with anger, uh, to become to such a point of frustration uh, that they uh, are ready just to throw it all in. They're ready to give up. Paul wisely recognized that as, as parents, we can cause our children to grow so frustrated that a kid gives up all hope of pleasing their parents and God because they're filled with bitterness. How do we keep from doing that? Write, write these things down and we'll close with this. First of all, parents, if you do not want to provoke your children, number one, see your child as an individual. See your child as an individual. For us that have multiple children, this is a little more difficult because we think one style of parenting fits all. I am blown away at how different each of my boys are. They're totally different. And the way that they get into trouble is different. And the way that we have to discipline in some ways is different. Now, we never want to show favoritism, but we want to address their individual bent in addressing not only affirmation for them, but also discipline when things aren't going so well. And so different kids are going to mean different parenting styles. Now, that does not mean you throw out wholesale issues of parenting for one, because you don't want to show favoritism. But you also want to recognize they're different. So they're individuals. Number two, one way that you can provoke your children is by ignoring them. 
Parents, uh, we can become so lazy in our approach that we ignore them. And by ignoring what they're watching and what they're doing and who their friends are and the decisions they're making, you may think you're empowering them. You are allowing your child to try to live this life on their own. You aren't helping them. You are hindering them every step of the way. So don't ignore them. Don't think that, well, they're doing fine and they're hanging around in a good school or all that. Be involved in your child's life. Have lots of conversations with them. Don't be lazy. Get engaged. Number three, don't intimidate your kids. Just because you hold all the cards, because you're bigger than them, you have more money than them, they live in your home and and you buy their clothes, a parent is not to be a despot. Dads, your calling is not to be a dictator. Love on them. Nothing will push your kids away more than a pushy or bossy parent who seemingly doesn't care about your child's needs. But on the other end of the spectrum, don't indulge them. Write that down. Don't indulge them. Some of us are giving our kids everything that they want, even though they don't need it. It's good for you to say no to your kids. It's good to keep them from instant gratification. It's good for them to understand that they're not going to have everything that their friends have. But help them understand why you're saying no. And finally, never insult them. Paul reminds the church what it should be true in the family. That in our conversations with one another, we should let no unwholesome word come from our mouth except for that which is useful for building others up. And I get it, moms, and I get it, dads, that at times... We want to just, just rip them up and down with our words. And Paul says it's unacceptable. Do not use your word. Your words are just as dangerous as, as weapons are because they tear down the very core of who a child is. You see, being in a family today isn't easy. It's not easy for parents. It's not easy for kids. But God wants us to strive for holiness He wants us to strive for holiness in all things so that we might bring him glory and show the world the gospel that it does matter to be a follower of Jesus Christ and that the gospel that we affirm has the ability to change mom and dads and change kids for the glory of Jesus Christ. And when the family gets behind it, the Bible tells us that we will prosper. So let's endeavor to that end this week and the days to come. I'm going to pray for us as a body, and then uh, I'm going to ask that you remain in your seats for a moment. I want to share something with you after my prayer, and then I will dismiss you. So let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and we thank you for your word. And, and Lord, I, I pray that you would help uh, parents and children alike to, um, to hear these words and to live them out, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it. And Lord, I know there may be some dynamics and struggles along the way, but I pray that you would give us patience and long-suffering in order that we may honor you in all that we do. Lord, give us your extra strength and spirit, uh, grace through your spirit uh, to be able to do this. Lord, if we need help with our families, Lord, I pray that we would seek this body of believers to help us um, so that they may bear our burdens together. Now, Lord, we thank you for this time and give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.